I'm going to invite you just to pick up where we left off the last time I was with you. We're working through the book of 1 Thessalonians. So please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And if the Lord wills, we will conclude chapter 4 today. We'll be beginning in verse 13. I'm going to remind you that what had happened is Paul, Silas, and Timothy went into a city called Thessalonica. We see this in Acts chapter 17. And I suppose much like our team went to Neamun Island this past week, they went in and shared the gospel. And they did it for around three weeks. And the gospel there took root. And a church was established. But it was established under great persecution. And, and there was trouble there. And so the first few chapters of First Thessalonians have to do as a word of encouragement to say, we're so grateful that the gospel is working among you Christians there in Thessalonians, and we're hearing about wonderful reports of your love for one another, and even how the gospel is spreading into the region called Macedonia. And there's also words there of encouragement. Understand that you're suffering, but with God's help, persevere. And then the first part of chapter 4, you might remember, that we spoke about a life that pleases God. That life is a pure life. That life is a loving life, and that life is one of working. But this morning, we're going to conclude by picking up a question that these new Christians were asking Paul, and Paul's going to take that question, and he's going to provide some insight for it. So look with me at your copy of the Bible and follow along with me in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will ascend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I believe this is a word of encouragement that the Bible is going to provide for us today. So let's pray to that end. But Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. It is breathing. It is all true. It speaks to our life situation. It is as current today is any up-to-date news that comes across our phones or devices. It, it speaks to us, and it's going to speak to us again today. And so we pray that with it, there would be courage that comes into our souls as we hear it today. And I, I pray that I would just simply get out of the way, but would allow your word to just be un, uncorked and, and be able to be unleashed here into the hearts of your people And those who are not yet your people, may they be challenged to see the love that you have for them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think there is something within us where we want to know the future. 
uh, it might be what drives many of us to say, what is the weather forecast tomorrow? It, It could be what drives some of us, and we think about our retirement portfolios, to say, I need the latest stock tip. So with that information, I might be able to build my retirement portfolio. Likely, it is what drives what the world chases in the horoscope of saying, if I read this, maybe I'll get some insight on what my day will look like. Well, as a boy, and even into my adult years, it seems like I've always been surrounded with people that read the farmer's almanac. And they would say something like, well, the farmer's almanac predicts that it's going to be very harsh or very mild winter. And this pursuit to know the future also spills over into Jesus' second coming. What will it be like? What will be the events that lead up to it? And what will we see when Jesus returns? This passage today deals with some of that. But I would remind you, as we look at this passage carefully, that that information is not just to satisfy your curiosity, but it actually offers a very pastoral tone. You see, the new Christians had some questions. In fact, if you have an outline, we put the outline today on the Bible app, and you can see it there. I have a few statements. The first statement is this. Life is filled with questions. Life is filled with questions. When you look at chapter 4, verse 13, it says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. It is believed that these new Christians there in Thessalonica uh, had two different things going on. One, they had some loved ones who were Christians and they had died. And the second thing that they had going on is that they believed that Jesus was going to return a second time. And so they were asking themselves, and they were asking Paul, how do those two events interact with one another? What happens to my Christian loved one when they died? Are they all right? Shall we see them again? Are they at a disadvantage when it comes to the second coming? We hear of Jesus' second coming. Will they see him a second time? Or will we see them a second time? Or will they miss the second coming altogether. And so this is where this passage emerges from to addressing these questions. And isn't true that life is filled with lingering questions. And so Paul is going to set an example for us that we take these questions back to the Word of God. The second statement I think we see in this passage is this. There is hope for Christians who have gone on before us. Look with me again at verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed. That word uninformed means we don't want you to have misinformation. We don't want you to be ignorant. We want you to know the truth. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. In verse 13, Paul is addressing two groups of people. There are the people that look at death and have no hope. And he is saying, you don't need to be like that. You can look at death 
and have great hope. The philosophers during this time, when they looked at death, they looked at it once and for all. In fact, William Barclay, a commentator, has said, quoting from a couple of philosophers of that time, one by the name of Achilles, he wrote, Once a man dies, there is no resurrection. Another philosopher said, There is hope for those who are alive, but those who have died are without hope. Catalyst wrote, When once our brief light sets, there is one perpetual night through which we must sleep. And on the tombstones, this grim message was shared. I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. And this hopelessness is faced with the collision of the gospel message. And Paul is sharing to these Christians back then in Thessalonica, and I have the privilege of proclaiming to you today that there is hope for those loved ones who are Christians that have gone before us, that we will one day see them again. And where does that hope come from? Well, if you look here, you'll see this magnificent word in verse 13, brothers about those who are asleep. The word asleep there is used to refer to the people who have died. But, but Paul is using this word asleep very intentionally. It's a word that speaks of one who has won out for fruitful labor and now has been laid to rest. It's the same word that Jesus used in John chapter 11. Verses 11 through 13, when he spoke of Lazarus, that he had fallen asleep. Now, he had known that he had actually died, but that he would come back to life. And so when Paul is addressing Christians who have died, he is saying that they are asleep. He is referring to their bodies, because the scriptures tells us that our souls go immediately to either heaven or hell. So let us be clear that this sleep here is not a false teaching called soul sleep. Many of us can quote that great passage from the King James Version, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, that says that we are absent from the body and what? Present with the Lord. And we see this pattern throughout Jesus' teachings as well. Do you remember in Luke chapter 16 where he shared the story of Lazarus? And the rich man? And let me just read a few of these verses in Luke 16. Verse 19, it says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Listen to this. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus as his side. This passage clearly teaches that when a person dies, their soul either goes to heaven or to hell. We could see something similar in Matthew chapter 17 as well, where a person might physically be dead, their body may fall asleep, but their soul moves on. 
This is that Mount of Transfiguration. I'll just read a few verses here in Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And verse 3 says, And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, if you know your Bible history and your timeline a little bit, you know that Moses had lived around 1,400 or 1,500 years before that. And Elijah had lived around 900 years before that. You see, they have come back. Their bodies may have been laid, but their souls went immediately with God. And how about this one? Do you remember when Jesus died on the cross? There were a few thieves on his right and left, and one of them mocked, but another one was repentant. And what did Jesus say to the repentant one? He said, truly I'd say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, death cannot separate us from the love of Christ. There is wonderful hope that Paul was conveying to that church, wonderful hope that I'm conveying to you today. Just a few nights ago, and and all these nights sort of kind of jumbled together for me. It may have been Friday night, and we had gotten the news that uh, Jared was not going to be able to go back with us, and we kind of had to pray through it, make a decision. Should we all stay, or or should the three of us go? And we just sensed it was wise for us, just all the three of us, to return. And we got a hotel near the capital of Senegal, uh, so we could leave early in the morning. And, and uh, we had given uh, Haley the bed, and, and Abe and I were on the floor on a mattress. And I'm just being honest with you, I wasn't, I wasn't sleeping very well that night. And oftentimes when that happens, I just see that as an invitation to pray. And, and I was just running through Scripture in my mind. And, and by God's grace, I just came across Psalm 23. And in particular, verse 4. And even though... I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. And that, that phrase, through, it took on a whole new significance to me. As, as the word of God and David is writing that psalm, he is speaking about death around him. And he is saying that when you are in the right relationship with God when you are saved, when you approach the valley of death, it's not that you just come across the the border of that. By his grace and by his power, listen, you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And while I was laying there and not really be able to, 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 uh, to, to fall asleep, I had a second problem, and that was I was just really excited. To think of that wonderful truth that when it comes to death, we have this promise that we walk through it. What a marvelous promise for us to grasp. Now, a valid question for us is where does this hope come from? Where is the spring from where this hope flows? And I think we see the answer to that in verses 14 and 15. Our hope is built on the gospel established on the word of God. That's a third statement here. Our hope is built on the gospel and established on the word of God. Look with me there at verse 14 of Colossians. 
It says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Since we believed that Jesus died. And if you're, if you're reading through this carefully, you know that when the Holy Spirit inspired this scripture, that there's a definite difference between the word dead there, or died, and the word sleep. For since we believe that Jesus died, he took on death so that Christians could experience sleep. Does that make sense? It was one Bible teacher by the name of T.E. Wilson that says, death has been changed to sleep by the work of Christ. It is an apt metaphor in which the whole concept of death is transformed. Christ made it in the name of death in the dialect of the church. Because Jesus took the sting from sin and death, Christians, we we may look at death as just merely sleep. We will have our souls go immediately to our Savior. When he returns, we'll find out here in a moment that our bodies will be reunited. Our hope is built on, on this gospel, speaking of his death, but you'll also see the next part of verse 14, and he rose again. He not only faced death courageously, taking it upon himself victoriously, but then you see there that he rose again. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 23, Jesus' resurrection is called the first fruits, leading to other resurrections. Now, growing up, sometimes I'd go down to my grandfather's farm there in the southern part of the state, and he would not only plant corn, for the cows, but there was always times where he would plant sweet corn as well for the family. And don't you know, it was a magnificent day when the first fruits of that sweet corn were pulled and the family was served. What what was so significant about that? Well, of course, the, the corn was really good, but it was a sign of things to come. And when Jesus was raised from life, He was the first fruits of resurrection and the hope that our faith is built on. Now, where do we hear about Jesus' death and and his resurrection and that being our hope? Look with me at the next part of verses 14 and into 15. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That's those who have died. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. You see that? This is not a teaching that springs out of Paul's opinion, but it comes from God himself. Now, I think there is some significance that it doesn't say the word from the Lord. It says a word from the Lord. The word from the Lord, I think we would say, well, he must have traced this back to the Old Testament, and he's just pulling from that. But he uses the word, a word from the Lord. I take that to mean that God has given him some special insight to Jesus' second coming, and he's about ready to dispense of it here in the following verses. Our hope is built on the gospel, established on the word of God. And with these lingering questions that come in our life, it is wise for us always to take them back to the word. You know, while we were at Miamun, I remember one morning where I believe it was Jared who was sharing the gospel, and they had these 
massive trees there. Think sequoia, think redwoods, but they're African style. And they cast a whole bunch of shade. And, and there was a location there that they, the Africans referred to like the meeting of the trees. I mean, this is where a place where, where many of the old men would gather. And there Jared was just, just unpacking the gospel for these men. And as they were doing it, they were listening and they were weighing, what would it look like if I, if I followed Jesus? What would that mean for my, my ancestors? I would have to be saying that they were all wrong. And I can remember one of these men, one of these thinking Africans there, he, he said to them, you know, what we really need is we need the word of God. He said that to us. He said to us, listen, you guys are sharing this message but you're going to leave here in a little bit and we're going to forget what you have to say. You should have brought us Bibles or, or memory cards so we can listen to the Bible, so we could read it for ourselves. And there's some wisdom in that, isn't it? That's, that's what they need. They need the Word of God, as do you and I. It was one of those men. It might have been the same men. A little bit later in that day, we were walking back to where we were sleeping. We were walking through some fields where in a, in a little while they'd be planting some some rice, and as we were walking one way, this man that was there in that, that, that gathering earlier today was walking the other way, and he says, aha, I see you. And, and, and in a, with, through a translator, he said, what you have to say to us is new to us. Come back again. Tell us again. We need the word of God. We need to read this for ourselves. And there's some wisdom in that. And if that's true of Africans who don't have the Word of God, what about you? You have the Word of God. Are you reading it? As we speak about spiritual warfare today, one of the the main weapons we have, the main weapon we have, is the Word of God. We can't just read it, and we need to read it, but we need to hide it in our hearts. We need to fight, go on the offensive with God the Word of God. So there are these lingering questions, and they are met with hope that we will see our loved ones again. And this hope is built on the gospel and the Word of God. And then we see the next part of our passage. The Word of God declares that Jesus will come a second time to reunite believers who have died with believers who are alive. I'll say that again. The Word of God declares that Jesus will come a second time to reunite believers who have died with believers who are alive. And so here is just this sequence of events. And I'm just going to let the Bible speak for itself here. You, you see these different steps, and, and we're just going to let it just one at a time. Verse 16 says here, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. The first step we see is Jesus does not send an assistant. Jesus himself comes. And this isn't the first time we hear this. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. The second thing that we see here in the sequence of events is there was a, a cry, a shout 
the sound of a trumpet. We see that in the next part of verse 16, with a cry of command. The word cry here is a military language that speaks of calling an army together. The voice of an archangel. Now, there is other archangels like Michael that is identified in the Bible, but it says an archangel, a leader of the angel. And with the sound of the trumpet. And in the scriptures, the Old Testament, a trumpet is, is called out to announce a festival, uh, a, a war, and even at times just a, a celebration. So there is this noise that goes forward. Are those three distinct noises, maybe? Or is it just saying there's just noise that goes forward as, as Jesus comes? The third thing we see here is Christians who have died will rise first. You see it there in verse 16? And the dead in Christ will rise first. So these Thessalonian Christians have asked Paul, hey, what happens to the Christians that have gone on before us? Paul's answer to them is they get to go to the front of the line. Then we see Christians who are alive will be reunited with those who had died. In verse 17, then, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together. You'll notice the word we. It's found in verse 17 as well as verse 15. Who is the we referring to? Well, clearly it's referring to Paul and his friends. He lived his life with such anticipation that he thought he would be there to see Jesus return the second time. He sets a, an example for us in this. There was an old pastor by the name of Robert Murray McShane. And as he would meet and greet people within the church, he had a habit of saying to them, do you think Jesus will return today? And Most of the time people would say, no, not today. And then he would say, then my friend, you better be ready. Because Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 40, that you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And so there's this great reuniting that takes place. And then we see those dead and alive will meet Jesus in the air. We see it there in verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. So there's this reuniting of, of loved ones who have died and one loved ones that remain, and that will be a glorious reuniting. But I'm telling you, it's not the best. The best will be when we get to see Jesus. Years ago when I was in college, that's, that's the years that I became a Christian. I remember um, going to a little church that was right off the campus. It was a church of the Nazarene. And I don't remember really anyone my age there as a college student. But I knew this, that they loved me and they loved the Bible and they loved Jesus. There was a man there that would hand out bulletins. I think his name was Richard. He was an old farmer. And if anyone could hand out a bulletin for the glory of God, it was Richard. I mean, I, I looked forward to coming to church just to see this, this brilliant smile and such a gentle disposition. 
I loved to see him at the front door. And then there was a woman named Carolyn that would play the piano, and I remember her and her husband had me over for lunch one day. And this was a church that by no means was perfect. But boy, did they love me. And now I graduated, and and I remember coming to church for my last Sunday, and I was like, hey, this is it for me, and I'm about ready to get into the real world. And I looked around at these people, many of them who were quite a bit older than me, and I thought, man, I'm never going to see these people on this side of heaven again. And I'd never done this before, but I'd gone up to Pastor Ron Van Wy, and I said, Pastor, could I make a request? Would you please sing a song? It's a song that we often sing here in this little church, and, and it's become really important to me, and it's really important to me even on this day. And he said, what, what song is that? And it was this, and if you know it, sing along with me. Sing the wondrous love of Jesus. Sing his mercy and his grace. In the mansions bright and blessed, he'll prepare for us a place. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. That's a truth contained in the words of that song that were so meaningful to me then, and they are to me today. And as I was here this morning, just kind of working on this message, I, I couldn't help but think of some of the dear men and women within this church that when we will be reunited with them, what a glorious day that will be. And so this is the hope, loved ones, that we have. It is a hope that is built on the gospel, that is established in the word of God. There's one other thing there. It's found there in verse 17, and that is, we will remain with the Lord always. You see it there? Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. You know, the older I get, and the more I walk with Jesus, the less I see this book as a book of rules and guidelines and commands of things that I have to do. But rather I see this book as one that leads me to Jesus. And it leads me to a sweet relationship with him. And I'm longing for the day, and I know that many of you, if not all of you are as well, when we will not only be reunited with loved ones, but better than that, we will be able to see Jesus and be with him forever. So this is the magnificent hope that you and I have. Now let us conclude our passage today by looking at the fifth statement. And the fifth statement is this. The news of the second coming of Jesus compels us to action. You may be here viewing this online. It's possible you could be listening to the audio version or maybe on iTunes. As we look at this passage today, I think it, it, it drives us to think of the day that either when Jesus returns or when we die, where will we go? 
Our souls will either go to heaven or they will go to hell. One of the commentaries I came across over the last week or so had this little poem that is, is in a British cemetery near the Windsor Castle. It says this, Pause, my friend, as you walk by, as you are, so once was I. As I am now, so will you be. Prepare, my friend, to follow me. It is said that a person, maybe a man or a woman, etched out a few other lines below that, that read this. To follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. I'm just pleading with you, listen to me. You will either go to heaven or to hell. And a passage like this just makes that clear to you. Where will it be? Here we got the news that that Jared wouldn't be coming back with us. I just had this prayer. I said, God, if you would allow me, I'll let Abe and Haley sit together on all these flights, and whoever takes Jared's seat, I will share the gospel with them. If you would just let me do that. Perhaps this is one of the reasons that, that he's not coming back with us. So on our first flight out of Zigashaw, on our way to Dakar, there is a a man who I just, in a a brief period of time, grew to appreciate. He worked for the government there in Senegal. And and our conversation just very naturally uh, moved from here and there. He was in that area because his his mom was sick and she had diabetes. And I'm like, I know some people who have diabetes and have you ever had conversations like that where just pieces just start falling together? And, and he was a part of a church that, that believed that because you were baptized as a baby and because you were a good person, you'd be right with God. And, and so as we're flying over the Senegal countryside, I just began to ask him questions. I said, how, how is it that you would get right with God? Oh, uh, I was baptized, okay. Oh, so because you were baptized, you believe you'd be right with God. No, no. I believe this is a matter of the heart. One, one needs to have a good heart to be made right with God. Oh, okay. So do you have a good heart? I, yeah, I believe I do. And I said, would it be okay if, if I just kind of took you through some of the passages in the Old Testament? You've heard of the Ten Commandments, right? Yeah, Let, let's see how good your heart is. And as we began to walk through the Ten Commandments together, Loved ones, we didn't even get through it all. And he said, Chad, I understand. I do not have a good heart. My heart is a bad heart. And I said, that's right, and so is mine. Your only hope is what Jesus did on the cross for you. You you need to cling to that, like you would a parachute if you are thrown out of this plane today. Would you please do that? Do that. And what a marvelous opportunity to share with him. And that was not only true of him, it's not only true of me, but it's true of you today too. You, like us, have a sinful heart. And the mercy of God is being sent out to you and that Jesus died on the cross and he was raised to life to take on and absorb the judgment that you deserve. Cry out to him that God would save your soul.
So I think the first application here is that this gives us an opportunity to consider death. A second one I, I see in this passage is it's a call to help those who are grieving. Pastor Chuck Swindoll, in his commentary, provided a little story of his childhood. He, he said across the street from their Houston home uh, lived a couple, the Roberts family. And Mr. and Mrs. Roberts didn't meet until later in life. But once they met, they got married, they absolutely adored one another. They doted on one another. And, and everyone in the neighborhood knew them as a husband and wife that had a deep and profound love for each other. But they were not believers. One day, tragically, Mr. Roberts died, leaving his wife as a widow. And as the Swindoll family looked across the street, each day they would see Mrs. Roberts go out to the cemetery. By the way, do you know what the word cemetery means? The place for sleeping. And as she would go there, she would she'd sit at the graveside and, and she would talk to the stone as if her husband were there and could interact back and forth with her. And one day, Mrs. Swindell, Chuck Swindell's mom, says, Chuck, I want you to pray for me. I'm going to go over to Mr. Roberts, Mrs. Roberts' home and I'm going to share the gospel. I want you to pray that she will have an open heart. So she took a cold glass of lemonade and a worn plate of cookies, and she went over to share the gospel with Mrs. Roberts. And God answered the prayer of that young boy because her heart was open. And she received the good news that her sins were forgiven. And then the truths that we read about here in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 became very real to Mrs. Roberts. And you know what she did? She went back to the cemetery. Because she knew that there were other people that would do the same thing that she used to do. Go to these gravesides and talk to someone who had passed away. And she would just go and share the gospel with them. She was kind of a a graveyard evangelist. And God used her. Here's Here's a wonderful passage for us to be able to share the truth with those who are grieving. In fact, I love to hand out a little book to people within our church to kind of hold these truths and encourage them. Here's a little book called Fear Not, Death and the Afterlife from a Christian Perspective. And uh, I love to give someone who is grieving some truth to encourage them. Well, then I think if we just look at verse 18, we get a real sense of the application of this passage. It says, Therefore, In light of all these truths that have been shared in the the previous verses, here's what you're supposed to do with it. Encourage one another with these words. You see, the teaching here of the second coming of Jesus was not just to satisfy our curiosity, but it was to provide a word of encouragement. Listen, you'll see that loved one again. Encourage one another. Pastor Wearsby, Warren Wearsby, the story is that he went and had a, a dear man that he loved, and this dear man had someone that passed away in his life, and, and he went up to him and says, Hey, listen, I am sorry for your loss. We say that, don't we? And this man said, Listen, I haven't lost anything. For something to be lost means you don't know where it is. And I know exactly where my loved one is. 
You see, that's the hope that we have in the gospel. And I'm telling you, maybe it's been a few weeks of some turbulence here for us, but I believe that the Lord will see us through this. And what is the worst thing that can happen? We are with Jesus. So here's an encouraging word. Encourage one another with these words today. Jesus is coming back, yes. Those who have gone on before us, we will see once again. We hold this truth. It's through the gospel, and it's established in the word of God. I'd like us to close with a song today as as Miss Jean comes. I, I think it's a fitting for us to go back to that song that's so significant when we all get to heaven. I believe the words will be with you there on your screen. I have it here in my, in my hymnal. Now let's just sing these songs, this, this song together when we all get to heaven. Let's stand.